Hey everyone. So today we've got the second part of our episode with Ken Jobber. Previously we chatted about his life and career to date. And today we're going to hear more about kind of his own philosophy and what he looks for in terms of a successful career. So I'll hand you over to Ken Jobber and we hope you enjoy the episode. Just to switch gears a bit, for all the students who just graduated, got their defense or postdocs who are just almost done with their postdocs, do you have any advice for like what to do? Because I feel like sometimes when you change the faces, when you go to the next chapter in your life, it seems to be very overwhelming and it's kind of you're getting out of your comfort zone of the routine and you're like, oh my God, what to do? I'm lost. I don't know what to do, where to go. So how to deal with that and what advice can you give? That's a great question. It's one that I haven't answered in a while. And I still believe what I believed 10 years ago, which is that one of the things that is most helpful is to really understand what you want and also why you want it and to admit things that are okay. Over the years, I would narrow it down to two things that you may not want to admit it to anybody else in the world, but you need to admit these things to yourself. Number one, presuming that everybody who's listening to this is in chemistry, the real question that you need to answer for yourself is look at the people who have graduated from your lab. Look at the people who are working five or 10 years down the road. Look at your PI and ask yourself, these people have something like the range of positions that are available to you easily or relatively easily. And let me emphasize that relatively easily will still be pretty hard, but do you want those jobs? And if the answer is no, you need to admit that to yourself because that's the first step in doing something else that will make you happier. So I don't know the numbers for the UK, but I do know them for the United States. In 2010, the Census Bureau basically did a long study of all the people who had graduated from college up to that point, and then matching it with what their jobs were. And the relative number of people with physical science degrees, so this is physics, chemistry, geology, and their kinds of jobs, people who had those degrees who became physical scientists was a, a small minority off the top of my head. I think it was less than 20%. If you graduated with a chemistry degree over the long term, the likelihood that you are going to stay a chemist is not high. Of course, that is a very narrow definition of chemist or physical scientist as somebody who is doing physical science day in and day out. These are things that are important for people to think about, which is, you know, in five years, 10 years, 20 years, do I still want to be at the bench? If yes, then keep going down a certain path. If no, then you need to go down another path. Another thing that I think is really important and gets to kind of this seeming very psychology-oriented conversation that we're having today is admit to yourself whether or not money is important to you and how much money is important. And genuinely, no judgment, right? I mean, it's just sort of like we all have our inner desires. If your inner desire is to have lots of money, like you should admit that to yourself because 
that will also drive a lot of decision making. I don't really think that it's a bad thing in the sense that, first of all, we're chemists. From a statistical perspective, your ability to use your degree to get lots of money is not particularly high. <laughs> I mean, you will live comfortably, but you know, the Richard Branson levels of money are not, you know, <laughs> good luck. There are two aspects of this that I think when I talk about this. Number one, if you are the type of person who gets jealous because your brother or your sister makes more than you, like admit that to yourself. It's okay. It is bad to repress that sort of thing. The other thing, now that I'm older and I have three kids, I had one kid when I started the blog. Having a family and wanting things for your family is another aspect of sort of driving your psychology. I wake up in the morning and I basically, you know, oh, I have to think about our family budget for the year, for the next five years, for the next 10 years. Where do I want us to be? And that doesn't necessarily drive your love for hate or whatever of chemistry, but it is definitely an aspect of it. And I think that it is an aspect of it that when you're a student or a postdoc, that you tend not to think about. That was a very long digression. But the other thing that I think in terms of job seeking and transitions to whatever next phase of your career is, is I know that people these days, it feels like it's a little bit overemphasized, but it's still, I mean, it's overemphasized because it's true. One of the best things to do is to get to know other people who are a few steps ahead of you in their pathway. My advice on this point, you know, so it's sort of, you know, network, network, network is seems to be the stereotype or the sort of cliche. But I really think that the core isn't just like copy their careers, but understand their careers. Talk to these people to see if you want to become a lecturer at a university or you want to work in the chemical industry and understand what makes them happy about their jobs and what they like about their jobs and whether or not you would like that about a future job. And these are things that are good. And it's not just can you get to know people so that someday they can help you get a job? And talked about, you know, asking yourself those perhaps difficult questions about, you know, do you want to work in the lab? Is money important to you? For those that perhaps decide, look, I've enjoyed the lab work, but it isn't, you know, where I see myself in 10 years. What advice would you give in terms of exploring other, you know, potential career options as a chemist? First, there are a lot of people who have started with a chemistry degree and do something else. But I think the first thing to recognize is that it's not unusual. It's quite common. And then the rest is the same, is get to know people who have done things that are similar to you and talk to them and understand what talents and skills they had that were able to help them to use an overly cliched phrase that, you know, which skills were transferable and which skills are unique. If you're a chemist, if you're a scientist, you are presumably somebody who is good at recording data and analyzing it and understanding the literature around a problem. And these are things that you can take with you into whatever 
I don't know if you want to be a pastry chef or something like that, you know, some of that will apply. Although I'm not really these days, you know, I'm not really sure how, how far pastry chef is from chemist. I mean, isn't that a backup plan though for all yeah. the chemists? It's definitely <laughs> yeah. my backup plan. Yeah. If you're trying to bake, that's essentially chemistry. The only good thing is you can eat what you bake, you know, can't really do that in a chemistry lab. <laughs> Also, I mean, we have a random question for you. We always kind of ask this during the episode. Have you got a favorite chemical compound or molecule? The one that I always bring up is because it's so weird and cool. And I did some fluorine chemistry is fluoroacetate. Fluoroacetic acid is a very small molecule that is very toxic. So it gets into this, I think it's the citric acid cycle and shuts it down which I think is kind of cool and unusual and interesting. The toxicity has been narrowed down to, you know, a specific spot in the great big poster of, you know, biochemical reactions in the body. But also it is one of the few fluorinated natural products that can be found, I think, in plants. There are certain plants that grow in fluorine-rich soil and will produce fluoroacetic acid. Wow, that's really interesting. I knew kind of fluorinated compounds in terms of, you know, hydrofluoric acid being, you know, one of the strongest acids and, and that kind of thing. Basically just don't touch it with anything but really thick, heavy gloves. <laughs> so, no, I think for me, I mean, it's probably a very cliche answer, but caffeine, I mean, who doesn't love coffee, right? You know, it's such a cool molecule and I've got a mug with the molecule on it. And I think, you know, I feel like if you weren't a chemist and you don't like coffee, there's some kind of disconnect there potentially, but you know, then again, tea's a thing. So, you know, I mean, what about you, Medina? Have you got a favorite? Yeah, unfortunately not for the, you know, the properties, but more of what it looks like. I really like nanoputin because it looks like a man. <laughs> really cute. But no, not for properties yet. I feel like it's too early in my grad school career to decide which molecule I like. I guess one of the other things that I really wanted to ask, and I think you mentioned it briefly when we were talking about the jobs overall, is that you were curious to find out how many chemists there are versus how many number of jobs. And I think one of the things that I wanted to ask is, is it important, first of all, and how do you think we can solve the problem of raising the awareness of the chemist jobs in other countries other than the US and Europe? So I'm coming from a very small country, and I remember that I always loved chemistry, but I never thought of being a chemist as a thing. And when I came to study the undergrad in Canada, I was like, okay, I'm just going to do a med school because, you know, what else can you do? Either a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, basically. And then when I explored and discovered chemistry and I switched, I called my dad and I exactly remember his answer. Oh, you're going to be a high school teacher or work in a pharmacy store? So, you know, there's a very big disconnect. And I'm worried that there are a lot of fantastic people probably in other countries that have no idea that you can actually be a chemist and not work as a high school teacher. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. It's definitely cool to work as a high school teacher, but that's not the only thing that you can do as a chemist. And yeah, so what are your thoughts about that? So Medina, what country do you originate from? So I'm from Azerbaijan. Oh, okay. My knowledge of Azerbaijan is limited. It's a lot of oil. That's it. <laughs> so that's actually kind of the, the thing that I tend to focus on. Also, as you say, I live in the United States. I tend to think statistically. And part of the how difficult is this road for me is to understand what the odds are. And you can do a very simple 
sort of set of calculations. The example I always use, which I admit is a bit gendered, is in the United States, there's the National Football League. There are 32 teams. Each team has a single starting quarterback. A team almost always has a backup quarterback, which means that there are 64 slots available. And now you know that there are only 64 maybe you know, if you have a third string quarterback, there's 96 jobs available. And then in the pool of qualified professionals, it's something like a thousand, maybe 2000 people, probably less than that, who could do that job. So now you have, it's a hundred divided by 2000. So you, broadly speaking, you have, you know, one chance in 20 and it's sort of an easy way to, to take cuts at the math. And it's like, oh, it's a 20% chance. That's sort of doable. And then, of course, you recognize that like, if you get broader, it's you know, high school football and all that sort of stuff. And the reality is it's like, you know, it's a one in 5,000 or 50,000 shot to become a starting NFL quarterback. And so attempting to understand this, for me, was very important to know how many jobs for chemists are there? And the answer is still, I don't really know for the industrial side. I'm much more confident in saying, okay, for a graduate student in the United States in chemistry, each year the United States graduates somewhere around 2,700 PhDs in chemistry. 40% of them go to be postdocs. Each year, there are somewhere around 200 to 300 positions that are open at research PhD granting institutions in the United States. So broadly speaking, there's 200-ish positions and 1,000 potential applicants or 2,000 potential applicants. So now you recognize that the number is something like broadly speaking, one in 10 or one in 20, you should recognize that there's only one position and there are probably 50 or 100 or 200 qualified applicants and you have to co-sort of distinguish yourself. But it just gives you a sense that you are a one ping pong ball and there are a million ping pong balls or 500 or 10 ping pong balls in the basket. So that's helpful to me in understanding the math of the opportunity. The other thing that I think is more important for people to understand about getting a job in chemistry in their particular home country, which is that sometimes that number is knowable, right? In the United States, we have a very large, regrettably not as large as it should be, nor as large as it was, statistical understanding from the government about how many people work in a specific field. So in the U.S., there's the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is a part of the Department of Labor that tracks these things and says, well, we have done some math and we think that the United States has about 90,000 chemists. And so that gives you an opportunity to do the math and sort of broadly estimate Well, if there's 90,000 chemists, that probably means that there's somewhere no field and they actually have a job growth statistics. And they say, well, we expect over the next 10 years that the field will grow by 4% or 10% or whatever that number is. And it gives you a vague guess at the number of openings. In terms of 
Azerbaijan in particular. So we can kind of narrow this down, right? If you don't want to be a chemistry teacher, if you don't want to be an academic, where can you work? And there are some places in the world, like the United States or the UK, where there's unusually high concentrations of chemical industry of one sort or another. And then, you know, Cambridge, there's lots of biotech companies. And so that will raise the number of available jobs. I'm going to guess, although I hope I'm wrong, that Azerbaijan does not have a large biotech complex. No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) In Baku, is it? Yeah. I don't think that there's like, you know, 500 biotechs in Baku. There's probably three. And so, you know, it's a small company, which means that their number of potential positions each year is like one or two. That sort of thing is helpful and oftentimes produces a very daunting number, right? But I think that the answer, you begin to stop thinking about it in terms of countries or cities where there's a smaller pool, is instead is to turn it around and say, okay, if I want to be a chemist in my home country, where are the chemists? And then who are the chemists? And how can you talk to them? And that, I think, is the thing that if you're a person who wants to be a chemist in Azerbaijan, I'm going to guess the answer is is that like there probably is a very small Azerbaijani chemistry society. You pick up the phone or you write the email and you talk to them. And, you know, you go to the oil company and you say, like, you know, who are the chemists who work here? Or oftentimes, then you know that, like, oh, the primary focus of the chemist there is petroleum. And do I want to work in petroleum chemistry is like a really solid question. And like, oftentimes the answer is no, I don't want to be an oil and gas chemist. I want to be a natural products chemist. And if that's the case, number one, admit that to yourself. But number two, go and talk to them and like find out if your mental picture is accurate. Because oftentimes you may find that the field that you thought was boring is actually very interesting. Or you may find that it's boring, but it's interesting enough and you have to kind of go from there. I'm just afraid that there are a lot of people who love chemistry, not even like only in Azerbaijan, but like I feel like there are a lot of small countries where they don't follow their passion just because they don't have. So hopefully this conversation helps them. And I guess they can always start something themselves, right? Yes, yes, that's true. My point is make the small work for you. If the answer is is that it's small, then the answer is it's easy to get to know people. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think to be honest, it comes back to that point of just not being afraid to reach out to people and just ask the questions. You know, if you have a question, if you want to meet somebody, just, you know, ask them. The worst they can say is no at the end of the day. So To kind of finish up the conversation, we always kind of end on a philosophical kind of question. And hopefully this is not too philosophical. In terms of like a scientific breakthrough, which would you say would have the biggest effect on humanity? I read that question. I was like, oh, that's big. I will tackle kind of the answer of the day in a very weird sense. So my answer, of course, is like, you know, sort of fusion power, or some sort of basically unlimited 
energy source. My answer would be like, it would be really interesting to see what that world would be like and like what sort of weird after effects. Like the one thing that I remember, because I answered a question like this myself a lot, like 20 years ago when I lived in a place that was very cold and had a lot of ice and snow. And I thought to myself, like, wouldn't it be great to have heated roads and like what you would have to have in a world that had like roads that could like maintain, I don't know, now that I think about it, it would need to basically like constant 40 degree temperatures during the winter. And it's like, that would probably have a lot of weird, bad after effects. Like, you know, I don't know, there would be like sort of weird heat pollution, which there already is. But I think about, you know, sort of climate change and it's like, you could remove CO2 from the air. There's plenty of technology to do that. It's just that the economics doesn't work out when you think about like, what do I need to do to run this CO2 to methanol plant to pull out the extra 150 ppm of CO2 that's in the air. But like, that would be really interesting to live in that world where like, you know, it's basically like, I don't know, every city has a facility that basically like is hooked up to this magic unlimited energy source and sort of is running things backwards and is pulling CO2 out of the air. It would solve a lot of the world's problems in terms of, you know, energy consumption and just, you know, being able to, you know, keep power to those countries that, you know, may, you know, have difficulty with power cuts and things like that. So, oh, that's really good. I mean... I think we've just talked about a lot of different things today. Obviously, we went kind of down the philosophical, psychological kind of route at various points. But I mean, yeah, in terms of people who may want to get in contact with you, be it about jobs or otherwise, kind of what's the best way to kind of contact you, CJ? I'm on Twitter. So Kem Jobber, C-H-E-M-J-O-B-B-E-R is my Twitter handle. And then my email address is kemjobber at gmail.com. Thank you so much for coming. It was a really good conversation. Yeah, really, really good. You're very welcome. This was really fun. I'm honored to be invited. Well, if anyone wants to follow us on Twitter, you can over at Convo's Pod. And yeah, have a great day. I listened to The Periodic Vehicle a thousand times <laughs> and <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. And um, I was wondering, are you, are you going to release new episodes or? Yeah, yeah, we haven't been doing it for a while because Alex has been busy and I've been busy. But yeah, we, de- we definitely we have we have one that has been editing for a long time and I need to figure that out. I just wanted to let you know that you have fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I think we kind of got inspired by you guys, yeah. and we we're like, "Yeah, we'll pick up, we'll pick up where you uh, where you left off," kind of thing. So we don't want to take too much time, but thank you, thank you so much for coming. You are very welcome.